Welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world. Sitting next to the co-founder, Mr. Jeff Gann. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If you are watching us on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, thumbs this video up. I'm seeing the views go up. I'm loving it. And of course, if you're listening on the podcast side, I think a rating and review goes a very long way. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about relative resulting and the good and bad of comparing yourself to the S&P 500. We've been talking a lot lately about, um, you know, just truly developing this business owner mindset mm -hmm. and how we really try to think about a stock from, um, you know, an actual business and really try to separate being this portfolio manager from really just being a, a business analyst or a business investor. And I thought it was interesting listening to the Berkshire meeting when Buffett was talking about this and he was talking, he's like, you know, we don't trim, we don't buy little, we don't do any of that sort of thing. We really, you know, it's either in, out, um, and they, you could tell it the way he thinks about stuff is he really breaks down the business and thinks about it as a real business. If he's buying mm -hmm. one share, he feels like he's buying the whole business. And I think that's a very good tenant to have as an investor. And sometimes there comes this, I guess you could say disparity or whatever. It just It gets a lot more challenging when you are constantly benchmarking yourself to the S&P 500. And everybody uses the S&P 500 for the most part. Okay. So I think it just almost becomes this thing where it's what everybody sort of obsesses over. Right. Um, but let's talk about like your thoughts on it, the good and bad of it. Mm -hmm. Is there any good? I have no idea. Yeah. Um, there are. But, you know, what are your thoughts on it? And let's kind of go from there. Okay. So, uh, and we use the term resulting because this is a question we had. Someone had read Thinking in Bets, which I recommended as a book, and said the only concept they really got from it was this resulting idea, which is the idea of that people think a decision is good or bad because of the results they got from it instead of going and analyzing the decision-making process. So that's the two parts that are the problem here. On an absolute basis, it's already hard to know whether your investment was a good or bad decision, especially over short periods of time. And then on top of that, you're comparing it to the S&P 500, which adds another sort of somewhat random because it's not perfectly correlated um, element to your uh, assessment of your decision. So you'll buy a stock and you'll own it for however many years and then you'll compare it to the S&P 500 and you'll say, oh, well, I didn't really beat the S&P 500 there. So that was a mistake, that investment, right? Um, I think in the long run, it's good to compare yourself to the S&P 500 potentially because it's helpful for a few different things. One, it's helpful to get an idea of how much of your turn is just coming from taking market type risks. Uh, that's also we can talk about beta and all that sort of stuff. And two, um, I think it's also helpful because it gives you an idea of what you could have gotten if you hadn't um, uh, managed money yourself. And I think that's a little hard for people. And uh, I would advise not paying any attention to relative results when you first start out. Definitely. So people want to like start investing and right away they're they're after three years or something, they think, oh, my results are worse than the S&P 500, then I should stop trying and I should just go into an index fund. And the reality is you kind of have to learn. Um, it's kind of like if they were trying to break into writing or something and they thought, oh, I'll write a novel and I'll compare it to what's out there on the bookshelves. Oh, it's not as good. I'll stop. Not realizing that like that's the fifth or sixth one that actually was written by those people that was the first one that got published, you know. So it, to some extent, you have to get better, too. So I think starting out, it helps a lot to avoid comparing to the S&P 500. Do you think people should compare themselves to the S&P 500, though, if they're focusing in this micro cap, you know, overlooked space? Yes. I think everyone should always compare themselves to the S&P 500 because in my belief, 
uh, what matters is the opportunity cost. So like when we talk to um, partners in our fund or whatever, the idea is just we want to get you a better result after, honestly, after taxes and fees and all those things, which are not always 100% within our control, but whatever. You should want to get a better result after all that than you would have otherwise gotten in the investment you would have made. I assume the investment they would have made because we don't want 100 different um yardsticks we need one yardstick would be the s&p 500 so it's just taking it as an opportunity cost so i think that's a good measure it is absolutely true that if you pick a manager focused on one particular area then when they compare themselves to a particular benchmark that gives you a better idea of their skill in picking stocks in that against that benchmark but i don't know how meaningful that is in the sense of like so people will say well i would have picked the russell 2000 or whatever in Instead of picking you, okay, or I would have picked, they can use any sort of composite of things that they make up themselves, and many do. Um, I would just always use the S&P 500 because, to me, the it, the things that make the most sense are either you actively take a strategy, which is as unique as you want it to be, which is the sort of thing that we do. It, it's not, it, no benchmark would be accurate as a sort of idea of what we do. And, in fact, I think that some of the smallest cap indexes are more misleading because the quality differences in what we buy versus what's in them and stuff. Um but I think you either pick very active management or you pick like totally passive as your two sorts of things, because otherwise it gets into too many gradations of the the yardsticks of what you could use. And then over periods of time, you know, what will happen is by some measure we'll underperform something and we'll outperform other things. And that would be true in all periods because of just the luck involved of if you're comparing yourself to three or four different things instead of one, you will very rarely be the best or the worst among those. Well, we were actually talking about if you started as a value investor in you know 2013, mm-hmm. 2014, 2015, there is a luck component to it right. where how many people started then have just gotten taken out on a stretcher. Right. Yeah. So I, I was saying that a big part of a money manager's success has to do with what years they started up and what their style is, because you tend to attract a lot of money based on good early performance. And then with too many assets, you don't do as well in later periods. So it tends to be that the best growth investors, the best value investors, whatever, um, were at a very small size and successful at a period in which there it was just a very good time for value. Like I was talking about Peter Kundal or Peter Lynch actually um, too. Uh, both started off at a time that was pretty good for their sort of style and also started out with really small assets which they were, they were lucky with. But if Peter Kundal had started in the um, late 90s, let's say, instead of the uh, pretty early 70s, um, then I just think that even if he was just as good and even if there were just as many opportunities, uh, because the early few years wouldn't have been impressive, people wouldn't have uh, thought of him as being that great and wouldn't have given him a lot of assets and he wouldn't have become a famous money manager. Does it seem like a lot of investors that you look at, if they have a record, let's say that's maybe one or 2% better than the S&P 500, it really seems like their first five or 10 years they sort of hit it out of the park. And then like the last five or 10 years, it's just been like not good. But since they hit it out of the park in the first five or 10 years, they still use that as their performance to show that they've outperformed the SP 500. But here's why I think that's misleading. It's misleading because their business model is completely different now than it was between those first one to five years because of the asset size that they are managing. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. So there's two elements to it. One is a luck element. So I will recommend a book that's not out here, or not a book, but an author, Bill James, uh, writes about baseball, doesn't write about investing, but um, says some very intelligent things about stuff that we can apply to investing stuff. And one of them is the idea that generally the best 
the best teams of all time, let's say in baseball, for instance, are both some of the best in terms of their actual skill levels and stuff like that. But then on top of that, they also are the luckiest. And the worst tend to be some of the least skilled, but on top, some of the unluckiest least skilled. In other words, like if you take an average year or something, if a team won 105 games, um, they might actually have only been of the quality that they should have won theoretically based on like their, their runs, um, you know, 95 games. Right. And then there's 10 games that they won by luck. Whereas the bottom team is more likely to have 10 games that they lost by luck. Still the case that the best team is way better than the worst team. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that the win loss record for them is skewed a little by luck. Same thing could be true for pitchers and things like that. So same idea implies applies to, um, portfolio managers, right? Early on, if you're a bit unlucky, you're less likely than to get assets and to grow and if you're are the one who grew the assets the most and everything there's a tendency for you to have been a, a bit lucky so there is a reversion to the mean thing but the much bigger thing generally is asset growth and that's the problem and, th and when i mentioned peter Kundal, the thing that was sort of really lucky for him although kind of depressing i'm sure for him is in his first like two years or so he had these amazing returns i forget if it was like 30 percent up or it, first three years or something might have been 30 percent or more up annualized uh, and pretty strong each and every year um and after that period he had the exact same assets under management as when he started because the redemptions because the fund he took over had been like a poor performing fund and the market wasn't doing well and stuff as people probably like they said oh i got even they they took their money out of the market you know and so because of that he ended up with like the same assets and then it was very possible to grow a lot so in a way that's very lucky because the worst thing that can happen to you is that your assets grow a lot and unfortunately for money managers of course they have money come in beyond the money they're compounding so and you tend to have both happen at the same time so can you explain that right so let's say you're managing 10 million dollars it's very possible with a fund that they could go from 10 million to 20 million because they went up 100 percent over three years let's say but then on top of that they get inflows of 20 million. So now they're managing a $40 million fund. Now that's fine. 10 to 40 million is not such a big difference. Like I can say with the stuff that we do, for instance, some things, if we were 10 times the size, would be a detriment. Uh, definitely. But there are a few things that would be positive because you could buy like more shares and have more votes and things in some companies. However, a hundred times our size, there'd be no question. It would just be a detriment. And Buffett talked about this in his partnership letters early on. He says like up to a point, there's some benefits to added size and, and you know, there's economies of scales on the expense side and stuff. And there's some disadvantages, but you do reach a point in which it's just in the investment business, diseconomies of scale uh, for performance, for stock picking. Now there are economies of scale for cost stuff. So if you're an index fund, bigger and bigger is always better. But if you're an active manager, smaller is better, all, you know, always. Um, once you cross certain thresholds, you know, and you can compare that's the same way, like in businesses like um, breweries as they get bigger can have keep having economies of scale that grow a lot. The economies of scale for a vineyard are realized very quickly. So like having a somewhat bigger vineyard than another one is helpful, but having the world's biggest vineyard doesn't help that much, whereas having a giant brewery does help a lot. And it works like that in investing. Unfortunately, the economies of scale for uh, a stock picker are realized very quickly. So like someone managing $10 billion is a big disadvantage to someone managing a hundred million. And the unfortunate thing is there are many people whose records were based on much smaller amounts. Well, that's my point. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you're almost comparing apples to elephants. Right. And they're exactly. able to still raise money or still, you know, say, well, over time, the past 20 years, we've actually been the SP 500 by X. But if you look at the last five, 10, 15 years, sometimes they've drastically underperformed. 
And I just don't know if that argument holds up because how different their business model is because their asset base is so different now than when they first started out. Right. Like I was thinking about that with Pabrai. Um, I think he's managing somewhat similar to like 10 years ago, but it's a lot less. Uh, he was managing a lot less in his first 10 years, which was an amazing period. Yeah. Um, now, his record over the last 10 years or so that I can tell is not very bad for a value manager. However, um, his early record's based on a smaller uh, asset base. But in that case, I don't know because he has a very concentrated portfolio, which offsets that to a significant extent. If you had a less concentrated portfolio, it becomes more difficult. But even something like Peter Kundal, he was very concentrated early on and had to become less concentrated as time went on, which if you like, that's one of the lessons from reading the book, I think, is the problems that the assets created over time. By the last years of his career, his performance just wasn't that good, which was when most people would have been putting money in with him. And his performance was amazing in the first 10 years. So for the individuals listening that maybe they outsource some of their cap capital mm-hmm. to other managers. What are some things that you would focus on? So let's talk about the good okay. of comparing yourself and benchmarking yourself to the SP 500. What are some things that you would focus on if you were going to outsource your capital to somebody else? Okay. The first is I would try to evaluate their portfolio and their decision-making and their investment philosophy independent of the performance with the S&P 500. So in fact, some people have asked sort of about like what funds to put things in and stuff. And the, the truthful answer, and I'll be careful about this because I know we have some people who do um, uh, open-end funds and stuff who, mm-hmm. who listen to our, not that they invest in them. I'm sure we have many that invest in them, but some who manage them. Yeah. But um, I, I think closed-end funds make more sense. Uh, I don't think there's any reason for someone to choose an open-end fund versus a closed-end because the reason for that is what happens in the market. So closed-end, you would ha- you have to buy and sell from other people. And so what happens in the market is that as the type of investments that they make are popular, they tend to trade at a premium, which gets put on top of the fact that the stocks that they like are a premium too. Mm-hmm. So you get a doubling of the premium. There's a net asset value premium or discount. They actually can become a premium at sometimes in that extreme moment. And at that same moment, you're in, those stocks are overvalued too. So you get a doubling of that. On the other side, you get the discount. And so what that means is that if you are in like value type stocks, say you're in emerging market small cap value or something, you could actually have a discount in your closed in fund, but that's also the asset class that's really cheap right now. So you end up buying something that gets a closing of the discount, plus that method of investing probably comes into favor. So it makes sense to look at the results over a long period of time. I would say 10 years. Um, I think 10 years is enough, but only against people who are making the same sorts of investments that they are. And then if they're tracking after fees at a similar uh, result, so like let's say they're small cap value or something, and their result is about the same as small cap value, the fact that they underperform the S&P 500, I wouldn't worry about it at all. I think it's a plus to invest in the thing that's out of favor over the last 10 years and a plus definitely to invest in something that's at a discount versus something that's at uh, not at a discount because that adds a lot. You can do the math on it, but it adds a lot to your returns over time. So uh, the closing of the discount, even partially. So it's very hard to argue that you would do better in a fund that doesn't ha- that doesn't sell a discount than one that does. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think the SP 500 is a good measurement? Because how much of the market has been? I mean, you see the studies. How much of the market is you know representative of five or six stocks? You know, I just I, I don't think it is the a good, performance. Yeah, I don't think it is a good one. Uh, so in terms of opportunity costs, I use it. I think it's harder than what the reality is. So the vast majority of people I talk to, if they invested their own money entirely themselves, would underperform the S and P five hundred by a lot. 
a lot. Mm-hmm. The, the best thing that mutual funds do to the extent that people use mutual funds or index funds is it just protects people from having w- much worse performance than the S&P 500 or than the market. So it protects them from having very bad performance versus professionals and people who are better at investing than they are. That's the big benefit to it. I think that in terms of like the S&P 500 or something, I've said this before, I see no advantage in, say, buying the S&P 500 index fund versus like a Vanguard fund versus actually just buying um, uh, the same amount of all the stocks of all the stocks and never touching it. Because obviously if you do that, your expenses can't be higher. There's mixed results in terms of different time periods of whether buying everything and keeping it worked better or worse, but it rarely, there's certainly no evidence that it tends to work worse um, over time, like consistently. So you can see things that compare like buying the Dow at certain points, Ben Graham wrote about it and stuff at times and just actually buying those 30 stocks and keeping them. So I don't think indexing actually serves much of a purpose, except that it is something that people will do and otherwise wouldn't. So people won't just buy every stock. So take the Dow. People won't just buy, uh, put 3% or so of their money right now into each of the Dow stocks and keep it forever. Um, but they will hold a Dow index fund mm-hmm. for whatever reason. But on the other hand, of course, there are these ETF things that are index and people use them for a totally different reason. And so that makes them... Uh, it doesn't matter what their fees are. People will lose money on them because they'll use them as speculative vehicles and they'll lose money, which is far in excess of like the expenses on them. The mm-hmm. expenses become not that big a factor, you know? Um, so, okay. So then you said that you don't think individuals, because a lot of listeners are individual investors mm-hmm. themselves. They don't, they should not focus on relative results. So you're saying that they should really focus on the absolute results of their performance, right? Of their accounts. Well, yes, I think it's fine to focus on relative results versus a thing that you can identify ahead of time that you could have done. That's easy. And you could have stuck with over a long period of time. So I think it's okay to compare your results that you get versus the S&P 500 over 10 years or something. I think that's perfectly fine and good. If you identify it ahead of time, I think it's very important. And that's Mm -hmm. why I say the S&P 500, it's very simple. It's one thing. Um, Right now, let's say you were comparing yourself to the S&P 500 or the Dow and couldn't decide. Well, for the last few months, your result is probably, uh, it depends, but your result is very likely to be better than the Dow and worse than the S&P 500. They're quite different results from the two things. Um, so I think that over short periods of time, it's not that helpful and you have to identify it yourself. I also don't know how much it matters because you could also just assume like, can I beat 10% a year or something um, over the very long term? So like the S&P 500 in this um, millennium has not done anywhere near that well because it was very high priced to start off. That's the big problem that it had. But over time, you might want to compare yourself more to that. But then, of course, if we have lots of inflation or don't have any inflation or whatever, it does skew those things a little bit. So Buffett and Munger, they always talk about the returns of a stock price over time should approximate the returns that the business is generating. Mm-hmm. So I guess to sort of think about, let's reverse engineer. Let's say you want to do more than 10% per year. Okay. Are you automatically disqualifying companies that earn less than returns of like... 10% return on equity or 10% return on capital of some sort? Are you just looking to focus on you know, higher ones or is it not the case because you want to um, or because you also get a return from the multiple expansion right. in the stock? I mean, how do you typically think about that? Yeah, either method works. So you could invest in things that are higher quality that you believe to stay higher quality, but that um, are not overpriced. Or you could focus on things that are cheap but you have to do the math. So we can do the math using the 10% thing. So using the 10% thing, let's think. So to have a stock double 
over um, 10 years would get us about a 7% return or so from, which should be enough because if we want to do 10% or better, let's assume that it could take 10 years for a multiple to double. And then we have inflation. We'll assume inflation is like 3%. So this stock can keep up with inflation. It should really do, but at least better than that if it's reinvesting and its returns on uh, capital aren't going down. So you are almost certain to beat the market if you buy something, or not beat the market, but at least get a 10% return over 10 years. If you buy something that's selling at half of what it's worth, and then it will sell at all of what it's worth, and that will happen within 10 years. Now, Graham said it usually happens in his experience within like one to three years, one and a half to two and a half years, he said. And I've found that to be true. Three bites have the same thing. Yeah, one to three years tends to be when it happens. But let's say it takes longer. And the more complicated companies and the faster growers and things like that actually can stay undervalued for a long time. But if you're buying something very static, it does tend to happen a little bit faster than that. So what that would mean is let's say you find a bank that you like that should trade at least one times book and you buy it at half of book. That's all you need to do because uh, all you you will get a return of better than 10% a year if you keep finding that situation and turning it over, finding it and turning it over. Um, we mentioned Maui Land and Pineapple, for example. Same sort of thing. If you buy something at $400,000 an acre that's worth a million an acre, as long as that value gap closes within 10 years or less, then obviously you've just gotten your 10% return just from that mm-hmm. without any increase in the value of the land um, because it's more than 7% a year. Uh, so you can do that, and we do that in some stocks i would say so we've talked about that before in some stocks where we do that um and then we expect some return on top of that usually we try not to buy things that are just very cheap though so we try to get it from a few few different factors working together so what do you mean by that what do you mean well, we try to buy things that are not that cheap uh so you talked on the rundown about that we owned Virtu Motors. Jeff watches the rundown. All right. <laughs> that, that we own Virtu Motors. Um, so Virtu Motors, we can use that as an example. So what does it need to do to clear a hurdle of like 10% or better? Mm-hmm. So a few things. One, we bought in, we took accounts which were in dollars generally to buy pounds, which I figured over a long period of time would have a gain just from that. Um, and in fact, some of the purchases were made at a low, very low point for Mm -hmm. that. So they've already had meaningful gains from that. And, um, that's big because if the currencies adjust over a period of 10 years or something, an adjustment of that size of let's say 30% or whatever the difference in valuation might be from what I think the pound's worth versus what it trades at, um, is meaningful. You know, it's several percent a year. If it happened in three years or something, it'd be a lot faster, right? So that's one factor. Then you have the factor of, um, uh, price to book ratio of the stock price to tangible book. Yeah. And the purchases were generally made at about half of what I think others would pay for the entire dealer group. So like in uh, a purchase of one one of the top five or so biggest dealers in the UK of another um, would probably, I think, pay in the neighborhood of 1.2 times book value or something it, You know, over the long period of time of what happened before. None of them in the market have traded anywhere near that since the Brexit uh, vote. So once it was clear that Brexit was going to happen or was a possibility Brexit was going to happen, they've not traded at those levels. But still, in you don't generally buy dealerships at discounts of 40%, 50%, 60%, and yet stocks were trading at that, right? Mm-hmm. Then there is, so you can get a return from that. That return alone, as we said, could easily be 7% or more a year. In fact, if it closes, the, that gap closes in two, three years, it can be like, you know, 30% a year or something. But it, you can get returns of 10% just from that sort of thing. Um, the stock was paying a dividend. Uh, and the dividend yield was well over 5% at the time and stuff. So if it had continued to pay that dividend, but COVID happened, um, then you would have gotten a return from that. 
On top of that, you also have, and again, this is defeated by COVID, uh, capitalization, right? So the other factor that I took into account is that I thought that they were overly capitalized. And this is often when I make a purchase, what the situation is. If a company could have, let's say, three times debt to EBITDA or something, a lot of people will like to buy that thing that has that leverage, figuring it'll keep happening and stuff. I prefer to buy the thing that has one times EBITDA in cash, but is just as capable as all the other businesses of going to three times because there's a chance while you own the stock, if they want to do some uh, sort of capital allocation to acquire something or whatever, that it'll be to up the debt. So So instead, we won't get the benefit of that in Virtu. But the upside on that is that all their other competitors might issue stock and presumably they won't because they'll have been in a better position in terms of debt. So it turned out to just be a protection, mm-hmm. you know, and, but so you factor all this together and you so take you, them as factors and you have like three, things right. And when I take with. that as factors, you'd be surprised sometimes when I say, Oh, this is, we could make some money on the currency. Oh, we can make some money by collecting a dividend in time. Book value could go up by almost the rate that the industry grows or whatever. Plus, we get a doubling of the book value multiple. Uh, plus, they could increase their debt so that their total assets, their balance sheet grows even more than like the book value. So when you factor all those things together in a row like that, all of them going for you, the number that I get over a 10-year period, and it could happen a lot faster than 10 years, can be really surprising to people. Mm-hmm. So that number actually is to me, if that had all gone well, and it didn't, you know, you had COVID, but if it had all gone well, is a far better return than you could get in any growth stock over 10 years. Because you just have to do the math that I said, like, okay, so you make several percent a year on a dividend, you make several percent a year on currency, you make 7% or more on book value uh, increase, and then you also leverage up and stuff, you do all that and you get numbers that are just way bigger than FANG type stocks and stuff when you look out 10 years. Mm -hmm. Now, what about somebody would say, well, are you taking like the NPV of these numbers or something like that, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I don't. I just draw a line from two points Mm -hmm. and do a calculation on that way. And I figure if the points are far enough apart, then it'll approximate it. I suggest using no shorter than three years and no longer than 15 Meaning that no matter how great a company you think you're looking at, imagine you sell it in 15 years. Mm-hmm. It'll help you from getting a weird DCF result. Um, I admit that some companies continue to perform really well after 15-year holdings. And then on three years, I always tell people, do not calculate your value stocks as if you know that they'll reach fair value within less than three years. Always assume you have to hold for at least three years. Mm-hmm. You get read all these things where write-ups where they say next year. Yeah, like value get back club. To, and, right. Yeah, it's and yeah, I agree with that. If it, yes, if a net net goes to net current asset value or higher or whatever in one year, you'll make a 50% something return. And I've done that and it, it works out. But it's like what Graham said. It could take one year, it could take three. Always assume three. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. Leave us a rating review on the podcast side of things. If you want to use the software that we use every single day to pull historical financial information, go to quickfs.net. If you sign up, it's 35 bucks a month. Um, And make sure you tell them in the survey afterwards that you came from Focus Compounding. We are very appreciative of all of the support. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next podcast.